All right, it's great to be with you again this morning. And um, in the little booklet thing, I actually had like uh, a section where you can work through something. And I didn't explain that really. But uh, after yesterday morning's session, for further study, I had complete a narrative analysis of Ruth chapter 4. And I don't know how many of you actually did that, but that's actually kind of part of the beginning of my presentation today. As we go through the content for today, and we're going to learn about poetry today, reading Jesus' Bible and studying poetry, this is probably the presentation I struggled with the most because there's so many different areas that I could share with you. And poetry, I think, is one of the most valuable studies in the Old Testament. I don't know about you, but I did not grow up with an appreciation for the arts, aesthetics, music, okay? Um, it just wasn't my thing, you know? I was more of, hey, let's play football, all right? Uh, let's be strong. Let's be tough. And that, there's a point in biblically where a man, guess what? You need to be tough. And, and that's a message that I think sometimes is actually lost on our culture, that there's a point where you need to be strong and you need to push through and, and you need to assert your strength that God has given you. But there is this component, too, that there's a love for things beautiful. And so even in the last five to ten years, this is an area that God has really grown me, to love things that are beautiful. David was a warrior. He was strong. But he was also a poet. And it was David that gave us many of the Psalms, the Psalms that artfully, beautifully glorify our God. So I think there's a great deal of benefit to learning poetry, okay, guys? There's a great benefit to learning poetry, and I'm speaking to myself too. And I hope that as we go through the content this morning that you'll have a few more tools to help you understand poetry. And if nothing else, I pray that you would have a better a greater desire to learn poetry and, and be a poet yourself and try to instill that even in your children uh, to be strong, but also to love beauty, to love poetry. So reading Jesus's Bible, we're going to be uh, studying poetry today, but I want to start off actually in Ruth chapter four. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Ruth chapter four. When I'm going through these presentations, I want to give you not just information. I want to give you some content as well. And uh, through the characters that are in Ruth chapter 4, this will function as a review of our content yesterday, we can hopefully have, uh, we can review what we studied and then transition, use that as a segue into the content for today. So when we think through reading narrative, and again, if you have your little booklets, you can pull those out. You'll have more information than what's on the screen. And I'm going to assume that you did study Ruth 4, even if you didn't. <laughs> I don't have time to actually go through and read the entire text. But you have several characters in Ruth chapter 4. And as we think through characterization, who are the characters in Ruth chapter 4? I know if you're not familiar with the story, you need to just read it and study it out for yourself. I'm going to, be, I'm going to assume a lot here. But Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gates and sat down there. I'm in Ruth chapter 4 and verse 1. The close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. Okay, so we have two characters that are introduced at the very beginning here. First, we have Boaz. All right, but what about this other character? Who is this person? 
Which, by the way, was interesting uh, hearing Pastor Choi last night as he uh, commented about Naomi. And we had a, actually a personal conversation um, uh, in, about who the main character is. And we're of the same opinion. The main character is Naomi, not Ruth. So, you know, if he agrees and I agree, then... <laughs> <clears throat> Okay, now, I want to talk about different characters, though. Today, and what I want to, the content that I want to go through is not building off of the character of Naomi. I want to build off of the, char- the other characters in Ruth chapter 4. Who is Boaz, and then who is this other character? First of all, one of the things that, as you do Bible study, I would strongly encourage you to be using different translations of the Bible. What do some of your translations have in Ruth 4 for this other person? I'm going to read the New King James again. Now, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Who is that person? What what does your translation say? The what? The kinsman redeemer. Okay, somebody else. It's back here. The guardian. Okay, somebody else. The Lee purchaser? Repurchaser. <laughs> the repurchaser, okay? Anybody else? These all have that idea of this kinsman redeemer concept. The close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Come aside, friend. Sit down here. Now, that's the first description of this person. Now, what about this second description of this person? Come aside, friend. Sit down here. Now, what is this person's name? What do we have? Friend? What's that? Oh, such a one. Oh, such a one. That's a name. Who do you want to be? I want to be oh, such a one. <laughs> anybody, anybody else? Does anybody have like a footnote or a comment on it or anything in their Bible on that name? No, just that. So the name of this person is essentially, in the Hebrew, it's Poloni Almoni. Poloni Almoni. Doesn't that have a little cadence to it? Hey, Poloni Almoni. Hey, so-and-so. That's literally what it means, by the way. Hey, so-and-so. So what is this guy's name? Is that really his name? What is the guy's name? How is he described in the text? He's so-and-so. That's who he is. Um, some of the, one translation I saw translated him, his name as, hey, John Doe. <laughs> That's kind of our modern equivalent. Hey, John Doe. In other words, who is he? He is the nameless one. He is the one who is not named. Okay? <laughs> but for very different reasons than some movies, I shouldn't have done that. Okay, so... Uh, very, very different reasons, okay? The name is a very important concept when it comes to studying the Old Testament. You know, with the song that we just sang, I had never heard that song before. That was a really great song. I love that song, Michael. Um, that talks about just lifting up the Lord, and it even references this kind of a metaphor, this analogy of the name. Well, we do have somebody's name here in Ruth chapter 4. Who is it? Boaz, we have his name, but this guy, he's unnamed. He's a redeemer, or he's a close relative, well, he's at least supposed to be, 
But then, as we remember the story, how is this character described, and how is he portrayed? Well, you know, Naomi wants to sell her land. Somebody needs to buy it. It's the responsibility of a close relative to do so. You're the close relative. Are you going to buy the land? And what does he say? Sure, I'll buy the land. No problem. I'll increase my estate. I'll increase my profits and offerings and for my generations to come. I'll buy that land. No problem. Boaz says, yeah, there's a little bit of a catch. You see, there's this uh, woman, the Ruth, the Moabitess. You know, uh, when, uh, if, you, if you buy the land, you have to marry her as well. And uh, you'll have to raise up a child with her. And to us, that's kind of like, uh, uh, okay, that's really weird. <laughs> and um, Really, you know? And notice he doesn't say, oh, I'm already married. I can't, you know, do that. He doesn't make some, what does he say? What did he say in the text? Verse 6, the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, or I cannot redeem it. Now, this is kind of like Orpah in chapter 1, where I always just kind of gave this guy a pass. You know, he's like, well, you know, <laughs> I don't want to marry her. I could lose a ton of money. And you're right here, Boaz. You know, you go ahead and marry the girl, all right? And hey, but what does the narrator do? Who is this guy? He's John Doe. Who is Boaz? He's Boaz. As you read through Ruth chapter 4, and I'm not going to take the time to do this with you right now, I would encourage you to note all the uses of the word name. Because there's a specific man who has a name in this text. And then there's the nameless one who goes unnamed. What is the narrator doing? He's not giving the guy a pass. He's slamming him. He is using him as an example of what not to do. The guy is selfish. He's in concern only with his own inheritance, his own possessions. And he does not want to fulfill his Deuteronomic responsibility to marry this woman, Ruth, and raise a child through her, which will then cost him substantially from his inheritance. His offspring will then only get the third, and Ruth's child will then get the two-thirds. This was a financial decision, and it was going to hurt him bad, and he's like, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And the narrator chides him for it. He goes unnamed in this text. Okay, so there, that's a summary of Ruth chapter 4, and that's a looking at the characterization, and maybe I should have walked you through that a little more and saw if you could find it for yourself. I'm just throwing it out there because then that's going to provide a little bit of background. We're going to try to fly a plane, and we just took off, all right? And we're going to go up and we're going to coast for a little bit. We'll see if we can land this thing by the end of our time here this morning. All right, so that was uh, the summary from last night, a little bit of review, looking at the characters and seeing what the narrator is teaching us through this text. Now let's go to our content for studying poetry today. Today we have the most content, the most content. Uh, and the first point that we have here for our content for today is that you want to be able to differentiate prose from poetry. And as your Bible is there and it's open to Ruth chapter 4, do you notice how a lot of times your Bible is just like this big paragraph formatting, okay? There's a lot of uh, ink in that area, all right? It's just 
all story. He's just going through it, line after line after line. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 15. To Psalm 15. And Psalm 15, we're going to use as an illustration for a little bit as we look at poetry, and we're going to hopefully learn some theological truths from Psalm 15 that apply to our lives. And I, and I hope as we study poetry and we use Psalm 15 as an example, we have a better understanding what it means to have a name. What does it mean to have a name? Boaz gives us an illustration of that. In Psalm 15, we'll have some further explanation of it. So the first thing when studying poetry is you need to differentiate poetry from prose. In Ruth 4, we had prose, but in Psalm 15, we have poetry. And look at all of the white space on your page of your Bible. See all that white space? You see, that's the English translators helping you out. And they're helping you to see, you know what? This is poetry because you have these different little snippets of lines. That's one easy way to identify poetry. Now, I will tell you that sometimes they're wrong, but for your, what we're doing here, you know what? They're right. Just go with what they have. It can be very helpful for you in identifying, oh, I've got prose. Oh, here I have poetry. And so if you have poetry, the principles that we're going to go through here in this hour will hopefully help you. So first, recognizing poetry, you differentiate prose from poetry in the white spaces on the page. Very, very simple. Now, there are some other uh, tips that can help you to identify poetry, and that's going to be repetition. By the way, the next two days, we're going to be in poetic texts. I love Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is where there's a lot of richness, a lot of depth, um, a lot of application even to New Testament believers. There's a lot of poetry, or there's a lot of prophecy in, that is poetry. And so these principles that we're going to go through here are going to apply today and the next two days. Uh, so the second thing is recognize repetition. What's being repeated in the text? The third point is to identify parallelism. Now, parallelism, it sounds like a big word, but basically it's when two lines are kind of like seem to be saying the same thing or saying opposite things, um, but they're next to each other and there's some kind of a connection between them. Now, there's a lot of study on parallelism, but there is one sentence that I think really summarizes parallelism. One thing is so, you know what? Something else is so. And if you want to look at it as a mathematical formula, A is so. What's more, B is so. Okay, let's look at Psalm 15, shall we? Actually, before we really get into this, let's just read Psalm 15 and let's pray. If you could follow along in your copy of God's Word, Psalm 15. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Lord, I thank you for this time that we can study poetry. And I pray as we study poetry that we would study your word and we would see the meaning of your word and how your word connects to our lives. Lord, your word written years and years ago these ancient words, they still apply. 
I pray that they would speak to our hearts even now, convict us of sin. May we repent of that sin, be cleansed, and walk in newness of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Parallelism. So what do we have here for parallelism in Psalm 15 and verse 1? I want to just take verse 1 as an illustration. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Okay. A is so. What's more, B is so. Who may abide? Who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? When you think through parallelism, a lot of times we see those two lines, and what do we say? It's saying the same thing, <laughs> right? It's like synonymous. There's nothing different there. It's, it's like just a repetition of the previous line. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? I would encourage you to look at parallelism differently. Don't focus on what's the same. Focus on what's different. I want to give you a little bit longer of a description of parallelism and what it's doing. B, okay, think mathematical formula, the second line. The second line, by being connected to the first line, carrying it further, echoing it, defining it, reiterating it, restating it, contrasting with it, it does not matter which has an emphatic seconding character. And it is this, more than any aesthetic of symmetry of, or paralleling, which is at the heart of biblical parallelism. This quote really helped me when I thought about parallelism. It's not just saying the same thing. It's saying something different. Psalm 15.1, what's different Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? What words do you have in your translations there for abide? Sojourn. What does it mean to sojourn? Huh? I still didn't catch it. Like as a guest. Right. It's like as a guest. The sojourner is not somebody that stays and makes up permanent residence. He's there for just a little while, and then he's gone. What do we have in the second line? Dwell. You see, the second line is not simply restating the first line. It's building on it. Lord, I want to come to your tabernacle. I want to sojourn there. No. I want to live there. In Hebrew parallelism, it's not just restating the same thing. It's building upon it in some way. Furthermore, in this verse, we actually have these rhetorical questions because it's making us think, huh, who can do this? This psalm is a liturgy at the gate psalm. That's a title, a term that's been used to describe it. And I came upon this psalm because I was studying righteousness, what does it mean to be righteous? I know we think of like, man, that's kind of elementary. Well, it means to do what's right. Well, how do we define right? Our world has a definition of what's right. I came to this study because of my study of justice, specifically what is social justice? 
they're doing what they think is right. They think they are righteous. Well, what is righteous? How do we define righteousness? And you know what I found? I found that we study what righteousness is biblically by one's relationship and closeness to God. Who gets to be close to God? We can find that out in this passage. He's asking that very question. The psalmist is asking, who can dwell with the Lord? The answer is the righteous one. So what is righteousness? Boom, here it is. This is the key to righteousness and defining it. Look at verse two. Here we go, ready? Okay, he who walks uprightly and works, there's our word, righteousness, okay, and speaks the truth in his heart. This is a definition, beginning a definition of righteousness. Now, we have three lines. Do you see the three lines? Okay, the one who walks uprightly, who works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Okay, here we go, parallelism. Not just what is the same, because it looks pretty simple, doesn't it? It's like, oh, well, it's just somebody who's righteous. They all seem to be saying the same thing. They're not. What's different? Here we go. Talk, about, talk to me about the first line first. What is the description? What word do you have for uprightly? He who walks uprightly. Blameless. Integrity. This is the word for perfection. Huh. Man, I think I read that somewhere in the New Testament. It's like God is, you know, holy, perfect. And like we can't commune with him or something, you know? Huh. He who walks blamelessly. He who is perfect. Okay, so when it's talking about walking, what is that talking about? What is that discussing? The manner of the life. That's right, the way of life. Okay, their life is this way. They walk perfectly. Okay, that's the first description. Now, line two. What's different? This is the manner of their life. Okay, they're not stealing. They're not lying. They're not, you know, they're, they're, they're moral. Okay, that's the manner of their life. This is the way that they're walking. Second description. Does is the key word that's different. Not just walking is the manner of their life. They're now doing what's right. They're acting upon that righteousness and doing acts that are righteous. This would be more of like the Boaz's. Okay, that's giving of their inheritance, that's doing deeds of charity, that's doing deeds of generosity. They're doing righteousness. That's the difference in that second line. Okay, now what about the third line? Now we have the speech. Remember Isaiah and the speech? Hmm, That's coming up again. This blameless one, this perfect one, we have these three descriptions. They're blameless in their walk, in their manner of life, in their works, in the thing that they're doing, and then in their speech and what they're speaking. The author then slows down and he's going to talk about specific acts of speech. In fact, as you work through the rest of it, a lot of it has to do with what one says. Look at the next line. He who does not 
backbite with his tongue. This is slandering. He does not slander. He does evil, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up reproach against his friend. Okay, compare verses 2 and 3. Compare verses 2 and 3. What do you notice one word that keeps showing up in verse 3 that's not in verse 2? Not. I saw some people mouthing it. Like, I don't have the confidence to just shout it out there. But (laughs) Okay, so we have a description not only of what he does, what he doesn't do. And the descriptions of what he doesn't do primarily focus on the mouth, especially in one's relationship to one's neighbor. Uh, In verse 4, I'm going to go through this fast because there's some other stuff I want to go to. And the main point here is to look at the parallelism. But I want to look at verses 4 and 5. In whose eyes a vile person is despised. You know, sometimes we see the wicked and we covet what they have or what they do. Like, ooh, I want to do that. This person doesn't do that. They hate it and they despise their wickedness and their behavior. Instead, see the contrast. He honors those who fear the Lord. So you have the, they despise the wicked. They honor the ones who fear the Lord. Isn't it interesting that our natural behavior is to laugh at somebody that's bad? We are not honoring those who fear the Lord. We're not despising the wicked when we do that. Okay, so this person, they despise the, uh, the vile person. They honor the ones who fear the Lord. And then this last description, he who swears to his own hurt, what's that talking about? That's talking about the mouth. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. What is that talking about? Louder? He keeps his word. Man, I made a bad business deal there. Oh, man, I wonder if there's some way I can get out of it. (laughs) So I managed the bookstore uh, at Faith Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary, uh, Faith Bookstore. And so this is something that I've had to live. Sometimes you make a business deal that, guess what? It just wasn't a winner. Sometimes you do get losers. So what do you do? Try to find a way out of it? Or you're just like, you know what? I need to keep my promises and just it is what it is. Now, that's a little bit easier as a manager for some kind of an organization, but what if you are the owner? It's a whole lot harder when you're the owner of the business because then it's coming out of your pocket. My dad owns a business. It's coming out of his pocket. And this is a passage that he has to even fight with and wrestle with. If you're working for somebody, it's not as pertinent. But when you are the owner, and I know there are several people that are business people here, this is something that really um, can uh, apply to your life. Now, we have this same idea of money in verse 5. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. This gets into the Deuteronomic law and how they weren't supposed to charge interest. But furthermore, it's showing the generosity of this individual. Who's the person that typically needs a loan? Especially in that culture. The poor. So instead of charging that poor person interest, what do you do? You know what? You can just have it, interest-free loan, okay? And, and to help them out. And, and it's kind of even implying, you know what? You don't just give them an interest-free loan. What do you do? Just give it to them. Be that generous person. Look at how this is hitting the pocketbook. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who was Boaz? He was a man with a name. 
And what did he do? He sacrificed his own inheritance. He gave of his own inheritance so then uh, he would fulfill the Deuteronomic requirement that he had to do. <laughs> Look at the end of verse 4 again. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. See, when I read through that all the time, I always put that into my shoes. And I was always like, oh, you know what? If I made, a, made an oath, I made an agreement, I need to keep it. But what if you make an agreement that you know is a loser? <laughs> and you do it anyway because it's the right thing to do. That was Boaz. He wasn't hoping that this was going to turn out. He was doing something that he had to do. It was his responsibility to do. He was supposed to take an oath and marry this woman, knowing that it could cost him a huge portion of his inheritance. But what's the right thing to do? That's the right thing to do. And he does it. What does it mean to have a name? Boaz had a name. And then there's John Doe, Mr. So-and-so. Don't be a Mr. So-and-so, be a Boaz. Okay, I've been kind of preaching a little bit again, but this was the plan, all right? So Psalm 15, we've worked through Psalm 15. What are we doing? We're defining what it means to have a reputation, to have a name. We're also explaining specifically what it means to commune with the Lord. This idea of perfection is right there in Psalm 15. And when it comes to studying poetry, we have this whole idea of parallelism. Don't look and when you're seeing parallelism, don't just say, oh, it's saying the same thing. Ask yourself, what's different? And then study that out. Okay, next, our next point. There we go. So differentiate poetry from prose. That was the first point. Our next point is the poetic devices. Now, the poetic devices, uh, three different poetic devices would be like rhetorical questions, word pairs, um, refrains, Okay, Psalm 42 is a text that has a refrain. Several psalms have these refrains. These are poetic devices. We should be a little bit familiar with some of these uh, just from singing choruses. We have refrains in our songs. I'm not going to go through all of these. I have this point up here just so that you know, hey, you know what? There's a whole lot more to study when it comes to uh, poetry. Furthermore, there are auditory devices. There's this thing called assonance and alliteration and rhyme. And you know what? That's in Hebrew as well. But you don't know Hebrew, so guess how much this is all going to help you? Yep, we're moving on to the next point. Exactly. All right? So uh, just remember that some of that stuff is still going on behind that Hebrew text. When you're studying poetry, the parts that are going to help you are going to be those rhetorical questions. The rhetorical questions at the beginning of Psalm 15, verse 1. Lord, who may abide? Who may sojourn in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? What should that rhetorical question force you to do? Lord, who is it? Who can do that? Who can actually have communion with you in your special presence? I want to be that person. I want to do that. I want to be righteous. What does that mean? Here's your answer. So, poetic devices, auditory devices. Now, I want to focus on something that I'm hoping will really help you, and that's the imagery. So, we're going to talk about imagery. I'm going to talk about similes, metaphors, a big fancy word, hypokatastasis, and symbols, and then two more big fancy words, metonymy and synecdoche. 
Before we do, there's this one common rule of thumb that I think is really helpful. A common sense rule of thumb is that if something does not make sense literally, you probably have a figure of speech or some kind of imagery. We see imagery all the time, and often we can understand what it means. But then sometimes it's a little bit harder. Well, how do we think through these images? You know, even this morning with Pastor Dave, he was using some, an illustration to illustrate being immovable. Did you notice that same metaphor shows up in Psalm 15? How does it end? He who does these things shall never be moved. What does it mean to be immovable? Psalm 15. Does that mean that I'm going to stay and I can't move, you know? No. Is that supposed to be understood literally? Obviously not. Well, then what does it mean? Well, it means exactly what Pastor Dave said that it meant, all right? We just went through that in family devotions. You're solid. You're planted on something, a foundation that doesn't move. So as people are attacking you from this way or from that, and they're wanting you to move and change your beliefs, they're wanting you to lie, they're wanting, or you want, because your heart is wicked, to slander, okay? You're immovable, and you're not going to do it. So this is an illustration of an image, even right here in verse chapter 15. Immovable is, an, is, a, is imagery. So what do we have here for these different kinds of images? We're going to talk about simile and metaphor and hypokatastasis. There we go. Okay, so the simile. The simile uses like or as. I'm not going to get into this one a lot because most people are pretty familiar with it already. A simile is something that's explicitly stated. As the deer pants for the water brook. The deer, it's thirsty. It needs a drink. And so it's panting and wanting to get to that water. Well, that provides an illustration of how we should pant for the Lord. The simile explicitly states the comparison. The metaphor is a comparison where one thing is or represents something else. This one is, it usually has a state of being verb. Like in this verse, I was eyes for the blind. I was eyes for the blind. So here we have Job speaking and he's saying, I was eyes for the blind. What is he saying? Should we understand that literally? Was he literally the blind's eyes? Like their eyeballs? No. It's a figure of speech. He was helping them. He was guiding them. He was directing them. It's a metaphor. And this time, the metaphor, it, it, it is uh, something that represents something else. The eyes are representing his helping these people that were blind. So the, the metaphor is not explicitly stated with like or as. Instead, it's kind of inferred. And then this one, the big fancy one, okay, the hypocatastasis, is a comparison where the likeness is implied by direct meaning. The likeness is implied. So that one's a little bit more diffi difficult because the lion in this passage, the comparison, you just have to understand that the lion is a lion and this person is a lion and he's acting like a lion, so there's no connection at all. It's just assumed that the reader can understand that connection. So the comparison where the likeness is implied. Now the symbol, this one we're going to really focus on in two days when we talk about prophecy. But the symbol is a representation of one thing by something else. And usually the distance is 
more remote, and there's a lot of facets to it, okay? So when you have these four great beasts coming out of the sea, and the four great beasts, each beast is representing a king, there, there's, there's some symbolism there. And the text then explains that symbolism. So we're not going to talk about symbolism a whole lot today. We're going to save that for Thursday. Today, I want to talk about these top three. And I hope to really um, nail down just some illustrations for you so that you can see how they work. And then we're going to go to a different passage. And I hope that you can see and think through the imagery. It'll be a passage you're not as familiar with. And so you're going to have to think. And so stick with me through some of this content. Now, here, the imagery, we have the simile, you wicked people are like dogs. See how the simile explicitly states the comparison? The metaphor, you wicked people, you know what, you're dogs, all right? It uses the state of being verb, and uh, it just states it explicitly. Then, the hypocatastasis, you dogs, all right? It's implied that the audience can understand that, oh, the dog and all of the characteristic of a dog is associated with this individual, and then you have the symbol. The dog came from the north with a great pack and growled at the holy city, but fled before the roar of the lion. I made that up. So, <laughs> so there's a, a, a symbol that hopefully fits uh, what we're trying to do here. Now, I've got uh, two more uh, imagery things. That, oh, no. So, uh, sorry. Step back. We're not going to that yet. I want to illustrate this metaphor concept. All three of these, the simile, the metaphor, and the hypocatastasis, are really doing the same thing. You don't need to remember the word hypocatastasis, all right? I mean, it kind of sounds cool, and you can sound really important and whatever. And if you take my class, you have to know it, all right? <laughs> but here, you don't need to know that word, okay? You can just basically use the word metaphor to describe all of these things. One thing is referring to something else in some way. Huh. One thing is like something else in some way. It's almost like a mathematical formula again. A, X is like Y in respect of Z. The wicked, X, are like dogs, Y, in respect of viciousness or wickedness or nastiness or whatever it is, okay? Uh, let's illustrate this a little bit. Well, what are the wicked? So this... This uh, square represents all of the characteristics of the wicked. And then we have another uh, square, which represents all of the characteristics of the dogs. Well, what do these two things then have in common? In respect to, and then I chose viciousness. Okay, because dogs can be really nasty, especially in the ancient Near Eastern world. The dogs were really gross. Okay, don't think of fluffy. Think of like, I'm going to eat you. Okay, so discerning the image. The wicked are like dogs in respect of viciousness. Now, let's go to the Bible. I'm going to go to Isaiah chapter 1, and we're going to use this as an illustration. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. So we have, we are like, okay, X is like Sodom and Gomorrah, okay, in what way? Well, when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, what, what do we think of? Do we think of their lifestyle? Do we think of, well, <laughs> fire and brimstone, complete annihilation? 
Do we think of, man, they were bad. They're just really, really wicked. Or is there some other characteristic of Sodom and Gomorrah? In this passage, what is Z? And if you want to open your Bible to Isaiah 1, you can do that. It might help. Verse 8 really would help you, but sorry, I didn't give it to you. It's okay. You can look. Go back to Isaiah 1. What is the point of comparison in the imagery here? Destruction. Okay? The connecting point here is the destruction. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah in that we would have been totally destroyed. Fire and brimstone. It's kind of interesting. Well, they're not destroyed. Isn't that interesting? Israel's not wiped out. What is preventing them from being wiped out? The Lord. Think through Sodom and Gomorrah. What caused Sodom and Gomorrah, or who, caused Sodom and Gomorrah to be destroyed? The Lord. The source of the destruction, in this case, is the source of the preservation. That's another figure of speech. Wow. That's irony. The destroyer is preserving you know that God in the Old Testament? He's so nasty all the time, isn't he? Like they deserve to get wiped out. We have the grace and the mercy of God right here in this text. He preserves them. Let's move on. Let's do the next one. Oh, we're going to go to the very next verse. Look at that. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 2. Hear the words of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Oh, check that out. We get Sodom and Gomorrah again. Okay, so you have you, and then you have Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what is the point of comparison? What is Z? You, rulers, are like Sodom and Gomorrah in what way? evil. It's their wickedness. You see what he's done? Here in two verses, he's used these two figures of speech, and then he's, he's flipped them. The first uses Sodom and Gomorrah and their destruction as an illustration, and then in the very next verse, he uses Sodom and Gomorrah again, but in a different way. And this time, he's highlighting their wickedness. Now, what figure of speech did he just use here? In Isaiah 1.9, I didn't ask you. It was a simile. We had like. We don't have like in this one. What figure of speech do we have here? 
It's the hypocatastasis. Exactly. Hypocatastasis. He doesn't, there's no state of being verb. You are the rulers of Sodom. You are the people of Gomorrah. No, it's just you rulers of Sodom. You people of Gomorrah. Now, did you need to know that big fancy word to figure out how, what that figure of speech is doing? No, you didn't know to know the big fancy word to figure it out, okay? You don't need to know some of these words. You can just, you know, piece of, oh, you know, they're not really the rulers of Sodom. So what's the similarity? What's the connecting point between the two? This has helped me when it comes to imagery. And I hope it can help you think through, okay? This person or this thing or this whatever is related to this other thing in what way? And you're beginning to understand and to apply, hopefully, some of these images. Okay, so we're going to go through a couple of more uh, descriptions. The metonymy, that's a big fancy word. Okay, what is a metonymy? It's substituting one word for another that is closely associated with it. One word for another that is closely associated with it. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this one. In fact, I wanted to actually delete this, but I had already sent in my notes and it was in your thing, so here it is. Okay, so one thing for something else that's closely associated with it. In the illustration in Jeremiah 22, 13, his work does not, he does not give to him. This rich person has this guy come and work, and so he's there and he's working, and then he goes to get paid, and guess what happens? He's not giving his work to him. What does that mean? He's not paying him. But the Hebrew text doesn't say he doesn't pay him. Instead, it says he doesn't give his work back to him. It's a metonymy. It's a metonymy of cause. The work was the cause. And when you go to your work, what do you expect the effect to be? Payment. <laughs> so he's, this, this wealthy man is not giving the work back to the man. He's not paying him. And that would be a metonymy of cause. In the bottom illustration, the Lord is my light. You know, we sang about this, I think, even this morning. We saw this metonymy of effect. What does it mean when we say that the Lord is my light? What does that mean? What does a light do? It helps you to see. So when we say the Lord is my light, we're talking about the Lord. He is the one that gives us the effect of helping us to see. So then we know where to go. Okay, metonymy of cause, metonymy of effect. Guess what? It's imagery, and these things are closely associated with each other. A synecdoche is a part for the whole, a part for the whole, or the whole for the part. It could go either way. In the illustration from the book of Proverbs, we're talking about speech again. The perverse mouth I hate. Well, I'm glad that when I say a bad thing that God only hates my mouth, and he likes the rest of me. No, that's not what's going on. It's a part for the whole, okay? God hates it when a wicked person speaks wicked things. The focus point, though, is on the speech and the thing coming out of the mouth. That is a part for the whole. Okay, we're done. We made it through all of our different uh, figures of speech here. Uh, We differentiate prose from poetry. We recognize repetition. We identify the parallelism. We had our definition of parallelism. Okay, come on. We talked about, well, I said there was a lot of different poetry devices that we're not going to talk about. 
And then the imagery that we discussed here. I was actually just supposed to have this thing all blurb up on the screen, but I evidently forgot to delete the transitions. My bad. Okay, there we go. So they're all out there. Now we're going to actually do this. Ready? Okay, we're going to get into the text. Ruth chapter 4. Boaz is the man with a name. What does it mean to have a name? You're willing to sacrifice and take great personal loss for the sake of doing what God's commanded to do, okay? You have a reputation. You are that individual that is trustworthy. What you say you're going to do, guess what you do? You do it. Your speech is pure and holy. Think through Psalm 15 and the things that we studied, okay? Now we're going to transition to a book that, generally speaking, most people haven't studied. I want you to go to the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs is a book that is about biblical love, and there's a lot of imagery in the book of Song of Songs. This imagery is very cryptic to people because we don't think through figures of speech. I pray as we work through the book of, well, <laughs> we're going to do like two verses here, two verses of the Song of Songs, um, that you'll be able to think through imagery more biblically. And I pray that this is something that you'll be able to apply to your marriage. And I recognize that some people here, they're at different stages of life. And maybe when it comes to intimacy, that ooh, it's not a topic you really like to discuss. Um, I, I would encourage you just to say, uh, by saying, this is what God says about intimacy. And our world is constantly dumping information on us when it comes to intimacy. Let's just see what God has to say about intimacy. In the book of Song of Songs, from two verses. Okay, it's two verses. Can you make it through two verses with me? All right. Uh, in Song of Songs, chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, we're going to look at verses 2 and 3, we have some imagery. And I want you to think through this imagery. What kind of image is it? And what is the connecting point? I'm going to read through the first two, well, verses two and three of Song of Songs. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Okay, so what do we have here? When we're thinking through a biblical theology of sexuality, which is what this is, we have one person speaking at the very beginning. Who is speaking here? The woman is doing the speaking. We know that because we have masculine pronouns. What does it say? Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Mm, it's better than wine. Hmm. It's better than wine. Hmm. In what way is his love better than wine? Okay, what's the point of comparison? Think through the two different boxes. When you think of wine, what do you think about? And then in what way would it correspond to love? Okay, talk to me. Louder? Intoxicating. Ding, 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 ding. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. All right. <clears throat> it's intoxicating. See, in the Song of Songs, we don't have, like, this big drama and story. It's a song. 
And it's a celebration of intimacy between two people, the way intimacy was designed by God. And what do we have here? We have a woman that is intoxicated by her love for her husband. You know what the world has to say? I mean, I've picked up memes, and I've never used any of them because I don't know if they're really appropriate. But, you know, when COVID hit, you know, they had these things. Couples, don't hold hands, no kissing. Married people, continue as you are. What are they implying? Yeah, married people, they don't hold hands, they don't kiss, they don't have sex, okay? It's like a non-existent thing. What do we have here in the Song of Songs? You have a couple that really actually desire one, each other. The woman here desires her husband. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Look at the next word. For. Why does she want him to kiss her? Why does she want him to kiss her? Yeah, I got it right. Okay. Pronouns. <clears throat> because this is why your love is better than wine. It's intoxicating. I like it. You know, some people are like, man, you know, uh, these people, they're like, Married, okay? They've already enjoyed intimacy. And this woman, she likes the affections and the, the caresses of her spouse. The word there for love, okay? For your love is better than wine. In the Hebrew, it's actually a plural. It's for your loves are better than wine. And the word that's used there is not like the, oh, I, I love my son, okay? No, this is a word that's like, I loves my wife, all right? <laughs> There's two different words for love here. <clears throat> and, uh, and this word is really like the caresses. For your caresses are better than wine. And so this woman, she is reflecting upon the previous lovemaking experiences with her husband. And she's like, you know what? I enjoy that. I want to do that again. Kiss me. That is literally what this is saying. Is there something wrong with that theologically? I don't know of anything wrong with that theologically. I mean, God created sex. He could have created, you know, the creation of kids some other way. You know, mix a little of this, mix a little of that. Boom, out comes baby. No, he created it this way, all right? The Bible teaches a biblical theology of sexuality, and here we have it right here. Your caresses, your love is better than wine, and God wants you to enjoy the intimacy with your spouse. Now, into the next verse, we have some figures of speech. I know, I'm just kind of... No, let's go. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Okay, so verse 3. We have a second reason. Because the fragrance of your good ointments. You know, guys, it's always a good idea to smell good. The lady usually appreciates that, right? Smell good. And I recognize I have some singles here. And some people will be like, oh, man, I'm single. I don't really, ooh, this is a little bit too much for me or blah, 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 blah. Come on, you know how things work, all right? <clears throat> and there's an instruction here for you, all right? There are lessons to be learned big time for you in this passage. Our culture, and especially sometimes even our sub-Christian culture, has taught false theology of sexuality. For example, it's not something that the woman really enjoys, it's just something that you tolerate. That's not a biblical theology of sexuality. This woman enjoys the intimacy with her husband. And I'd say, you know, sometimes I recognize I'm talking to a diverse audience here, and I'm guessing some of you, there's, there might be some of that lacking. 
huh, how can we go about fixing that? You have to talk. You have to communicate with one another. Ted Tripp has a book on sex. I've read lots of books about sex, and they're all saying the same thing. They're saying what the Bible's saying, okay? The biggest problem with your intimacy is your relationship with God. The biggest problem with your intimacy is you. That's where the problem is. Do we see that message in the Song of Songs? Hmm. I wonder if it shows up someplace. Let's take a look at verse 3. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments. See, this is what the world says. You know, if you want to enjoy intimacy, this is what you need to do. Smell good. (laughs) Well, is that true? Yeah, nobody really wants to be intimate with somebody who stinks. All right? That's true. All right? But is that where it ends? Remember, what is parallelism? A is so. What's more, B is so. What is B? What does the text say? Your name is ointment poured forth. What do we have there? What figure of speech do we have here? I know it's an easy question. When we have an easy question, sometimes we don't want to say what it is. What is the answer? This would be a metaphor. We don't have the like. We don't have the as. It's just your name is ointment poured forth. Now, what is the point of comparison? Well, think through what ointment. When you think of ointment, some of your translations may say, especially if it's a more like NIV-ish translation, they may say like cologne or something like that, okay? It's, it's how you smell, all right? What, why do we smell good? What does that do? She's creating an illustration here. Your ointment is poured forth. So what does smells do? Think with me about it. Just think about good smells. Why do we like good smells? Good memories. Correct. Yes. Okay. It might cause you to remember a certain place or person. Louder. You want it. Yes, okay, it creates a desire. Good. Okay, it helps you identify the source. You're getting very relational with it. It's like connecting to the guy or whatever. And that's good. It's coming from someplace, and man, I like it, okay? And... And then what is it? Man, I smell that chocolate, and I'm drawn to that chocolate, okay? Hey, there you go. You might be on to something, all right? That's not bad, okay? It releases dopamine. Okay, it releases dopamine, okay? This desire, it accentuates that desire, that desire for something or someone. You like it. It's something to do with beauty. It's something to do with aesthetics. You know, this understanding of beauty and Christian aesthetic. I got to keep track of my time here. It's influenced even how I've raised my children because I've understood better the importance of beauty and enjoying the beautiful things. And you know where that came from? This book right here. God loves beauty and you should too. You should love good smells. 
Good smells, I believe, they can't even be like this intoxicating. You have to remember, back in the ancient days, everybody stunk. (laughs) Bad smells were everywhere. You know, when Mary Magdalene breaks that flask off, okay, and she pours out that oil, what did it say? What does the text say in the Gospels? What did it do? The aroma filled the room, okay? A is so, what's more, B is so. The fragrance of your good ointments, no, no, not just a good ointment, your name is ointment poured forth, and it just fills the room. So is she really talking about the aroma? What is it she's really talking about? The name. Hmm. What is it that she finds that smells so good? His reputation. Huh. You know, the world, they have many different voices that teach us about intimacy, and they'll talk to us about intimacy, and they'll say, you know, if you just try this, or, oh, you just try that. You know what the real problem? The real problem is you. You're a sinner, and you've sinned against your spouse. Your name is ointment poured forth. Now, I would just encourage you, as we're going to dismiss in a little bit, to have a conversation with your spouse. Is there some way that I have offended you? Is there some way that I have hurt you? This is the beauty of the marriage relationship, okay? Because you can't get away from this person, biblically, all right? I know our world would say just divorce them, blah, 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 blah. No, this is the beauty of it. You know who's the best person to see the sin in you? Your spouse, They're the best person that's going to be able to see the sin in you. I can't tell you how many times my wife and I have had conversations, conversations that are sometimes painful, but conversations that were needed. Why? Because I was sinning. I did not have the reputation of this man. So why would I think that I would be able to enjoy the intimacy that's even described here? This is beautiful. This is the way God designed it. This is the way that it's supposed to be. We live in a sin-cursed world. And I recognize some of you are like, you know what? It's just not going to happen. There may be physical reasons involved. And so I understand that. And some of you might be single. Well, there's a message there. It's like virgins in the very next line. Therefore, the virgins love you. Huh? Maybe God's teaching even the singles something from this text. Okay? Maybe like, oh, if I want to enjoy intimacy when I'm married, guess what I need to do now? Have a good name. Be a person of virtue. Because you know, when you get married, that's when you start being a good person, right? That's when it begins. So if you want to enjoy intimacy the way God designed it, be godly. In this text, we have two, there's two different things. First, I want to just drop, drop with you. First, know your spouse, okay? Ignore the garbage that you've seen online, in the news racks, wherever it is, you need to know your spouse, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Why? For your caresses are better than wine. Communicate with one another and ask one another, what is it that you, you like? I don't care about Digital Babe or whoever else. They're just putting on a show anyway. Whatever she likes is probably coming from some pervert's mind. 
okay? Talk to your spouse. Number two, there needs to be communion between the two of you, which is communion between you and God. Guys, you need to smell good. And I'm not talking about putting on cologne. I'm talking about your reputation. Confess your sin to your spouse. Ask for her forgiveness. Talk about rejuvenating the relationship between the two of you. Talk about enjoying intimacy the way that God designed it. Lord, I thank you for this time that we were able to look at imagery and poetry in the Old Testament. I am so grateful, Lord, that you gave us the Song of Songs. I'm so grateful that you gave us the Old Testament where we see you in your perfection. You give us an example of what we need to attain. Help us to strive for that perfection. Help us to be pure in our mouths. Help us to be trustworthy to our spouses. May they recognize that even if we've made an oath, we're going to follow through with it. Our spouses should never question whether or not we would leave them. May we draw close to you, and by drawing close to you, may we draw close to one another. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.